Hello and welcome to Leading with Purpose. I'm your host, Dennis Morton, founder and principal of Morton Brown Family Wealth. This is a podcast where we have conversations with experienced leaders from various industries to bring their insights forward to help us to become better thinkers, better investors, and better leaders altogether. Today, I have two special guests, Craig Reynolds, former president of Cigars International and executive vice president of Scandinavian Tobacco Group. And I also have his executive coach, Eleanor Lawrence of Human Dynamics LLC, a board certified and ICF certified coach. Craig and Eleanor, thanks for joining us. How are you? Great, Dennis. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Sure. What I thought we might explore today is your definition of leadership and how that definition is informed by the people around you, by mentors, by peers, by coaches, and the people we bring into our orbit as decision makers to help us to grow and thrive in different roles. I'm going to start by a quick introduction to give our audience some some background on the two of you. Now, Craig, you joined Cigars International as an executive vice president in 2009, became the president in 2011. And then from 2015 until 2017, you were the executive vice president for the global handmade cigar business of Scandinavian Tobacco Group. And in 2017, you were responsible for the whole North American business unit. And now you're serving as a senior advisor to Scandinavian Tobacco Group. And during that time, you were working in an industry that is you know, full of unique challenges. You're working with both local and global regulations, a really distinct leadership experience, really a combination of creativity, some agility, and eventually became very successful in that environment. That's what we want to explore today. And Eleanor, you've been working with Craig for several years as an executive coach. Eleanor has expertise in organizational dynamics, employee relations, and leadership development. She's worked for over 10 years as an executive coach and has provided executive and director level coaching and training for the Center for Creative Leadership since 2007. Now, Eleanor has worked across many industries, including defense, finance, healthcare, hospitality, manufacturing, and pharmaceuticals. We've been talking a little bit before uh, coming on air today about just some of the themes that are really important in the coach and executive relationship, and also, Craig, specifically in your background. So maybe a good place to start off, Craig, is what is your definition of leadership? Well, that's a great question. And I would say that leadership is an uh, overused word in many cases. Oftentimes, I see companies that are successful and they say it's great leadership when there are many, many other factors. I think overall, great leadership means that you're setting up the culture and foundation of a company for long-term success not just immediate success. Many, many different people have different definitions of leadership that kind of suits their purpose. But when you see great leadership, you just know it. The company is humming. People are happy. Products are great. Customer complaints are low. Business is growing. Profits are growing. And to me, those are all different definitions of great leadership. So up until this year, we were coming off of a, a pretty long expansion of the economy, a boom time which you might say can mask certain things about quality leadership. What did we learn about leadership when we hit times of crisis? Well, let me first give you a little bit of background. You know, Scandinavian Tobacco Group is headquartered out of uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. And I found over the years that the thinking and running of companies from a European base versus an American base is very different. And and I've worked for many large American companies as well, Rupert Murdoch, Reader's Digest, you know, companies of that size and ilk. 
And generally, American companies are fixated on today's profits and just grow the business as fast as you can and as profitable and don't really worry about much else. Well, certainly those same demands were at Scandinavian Tobacco Group. We were blessed to have a CEO and a board who said, it's all well and good to grow the business, but let's also be concerned about the kind of risks the company faces and how prepared we are. Mm -hmm. And being in the tobacco business, there are many risks uh, around the globe as we operated companies in you know, almost 100 different countries. So we had an auditor on staff whose sole job it was to force the executive team to go through the different risks that, that each division could face, not even facing today, but could face, and come up with some mitigating actions. And that really forced us to think outside the box and what we would do in kind of worst case scenario. Not that we ever dreamed that we'd have a pandemic and would have to face that, but at least gave us some ammunition and some pre-thinking and the ability to hit the ground running. Right. Uh, also, Cigars International was extremely successful with double-digit growth for basically its entire history. My uh, superior, you know, the CEO of the company, uh, obviously always wanted increasing profits, but did allow us to reinvest in the business and try different things and fail, which, again gave us the ability to react when things didn't go as well. And it's not the first time, uh, or it's not the only time the pandemic that CI faced a, a crisis. Back in 2017, CI changed its operating system and its warehouse management system at the same time and had significant customer service issues. And we had uh, some huge misses in our targets. Now, nobody should have to go through that. It was difficult. But... Retrospectively, it did give the executive team at that time, which is still the executive team right now, the ability to handle an ongoing crisis and to react quickly, work together and act as a team, not as a group. So, you know, again, blessed that the company was doing well, but also that top leadership, the board of directors and, and the CEO realized that you can't just think about today, you need to think about tomorrow and be prepared, but also let us reinvest in the business and build up the capabilities and strengths to withstand the typical bumps and hiccups any companies have. That's an interesting paradox of spending a lot of time understanding risk and, and going through that auditing process of where are our unique risks, but then also embracing failure, that we, we can understand all the risks and still slip up from time to time. And how do we recover from that? Eleanor, I'd be interested in your perspective on how, how a leader can can both be transparent and say there's risks out there and we need to understand all of them, but accept that that failure is going to occur and we're going to have to manage through it. Well, Dennis, I feel like that is a perfect segue that you gave me because the work that I've done and the Center for Creative Leadership and other people have done about leadership is telling us, particularly based on the comments Craig made and that you just summarized, that the two biggest challenges that are characterizing leadership, and let's just say today, one is the need to juggle that growing series of paradoxical demands that you just talked about. They, so we're asked to do more with less, we're asked to cut costs, but we're supposed to innovate, we're supposed to think globally and act locally. The other right now that I would frame this conversation with is there's an unprecedented pace of disruptive change. 
which speeds up the interaction of all these demands and simultaneously increases pressure on the organization to adapt. So you all said the word, or one of you said the word agility. We look at that word and we say versatile leaders who have the ability to cope with a variety of changes and the wherewithal to resolve these competing priorities. So that's what we're looking for. Uh, These leaders have more engaged employees, higher performing teams, their business units are more adaptable and innovative, and their organizations are capable of gaining competitive advantage because they know how to disrupt really at this point before being disrupted. So that runway Craig described, they ran into a hole on the runway in 2017. It created a, wasn't just a practice, but I'll use it as a place to build commitment and teaming to recover, sustain, and then begin the growth again. And I submit that pandemic, although certainly no practice environment, gave them a chance to ramp up and accelerate these behaviors. And what just struck me as the sort of the dream that Craig's actually not sitting there running it. The team that he developed and supported are running it now and were able to adapt. And yeah, they had the online platform ready, but they understood how to manage in chaos. And that's versatile leadership. So that's what I work with, have had the opportunity to work with with Craig, and it just is very rewarding to hear the journey that Craig was on. I think that that's such an important, you know, in your in your bio, it mentions organizational dynamics and leadership development, and that's really the true test. And, and mm-hmm. Craig, you've, you've lived this in going through an executive transition and empowering that team to seamlessly transition. That mentorship timeline, how long did that last? How, how much time did you commit to that transition period? Well, it began when I joined the company. It never really ended. It's something that's just ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people need it more than others. But to me, uh, it's something I enjoyed to begin with. But I think if you're going to build a great team, that kind of mentorship and dragging people or pulling people, pushing people, whatever you want to call it, never really stops. Mm-hmm. You talked about some of the leadership lessons that, and one one of those was um, identifying talented people. You know, finding people who are really you know have natural ability, but also that that potential for growth. And you also talked about diversity of thought, just kind of building teams that that think differently. How did you approach diversity of thought on the teams that you had? Well, you know, a, a, one of the saying I had a lot of savings at the company, uh, but one of them was, if all of you think like me, I only need one of you. <laughs> he used to say that. I always used to say I like being surrounded by people smarter than me, which fortunately was easy to find people like that. <laughs> so I, I think, listen, again, going back to the definition of leadership, there are autocratic leaders who is their way, the highway, and that's fine. With me, I like to have a consensus. Ultimately, it's my decision, but I like a lot of data points, which means if you lead like that, you need people who think differently, who challenge you. Mm-hmm. And at CI, I strove to have an open environment where challenging was not only okay, it was required by senior management to challenge each other in a professional way. 
And if it got emotional, I put a quick end to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a spirited discussion is different than becoming emotional and personal. But once we challenged each other and we could see that there are actually many paths and roads to success, not just one. And when we talked it through, we generally ended up in a more optimal path. You know, one of my other mentors uh, said something to me, which I also never forgot and I often use, is that the sign of an intelligent human being is that when confronted with a compelling argument is the ability to change your mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People were often surprised at CI that once I made a decision, if they came back to me and said, Craig, I really didn't think you heard me well here, let's talk this through. And I changed my mind quite often because I realized, you know what? I didn't see it from their perspective. There are different ways to achieve success. And I think that made a very a much stronger team where people felt empowered to speak up, push their viewpoint. Now, if there were times, and there were obviously when I said, no, this is how we need to do it, I would explain it to them and I would communicate them why we were doing it my way because I might have information they were not aware of. And that then built up trust and a much stronger uh, leadership team. Coming to the relationship between you, Craig, and, and Eleanor, as in your leadership role, it can be an isolating experience sometimes. Having that other voice in the room and a sounding board, tell me about that dynamic and why it worked so well for the two of you. Well, Eleanor, I'll go first and then you could correct me as usual, okay? <laughs> now you see you see the dynamic? It was just illustrated. <laughs> there, 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 there you go. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Well, let, let, let me first start with uh, how I met Eleanor. And I was originally introduced to Eleanor when there was a joint venture between the two companies that was CI was part of. And the CEO at that time, Anders Colding Fries, brought in CCL to have the different executives be able to work together. And that's when I was first introduced to Eleanor. Uh, a little bit after that, I was invited to join the management board of Scandinavian Tobacco Group, which I did. And there was one person on the board who... We just did not get along, push my buttons. And I realized was making me act in a manner that was not as professional as I wanted to be or showed to many of the board members. So I asked Anders if I could get an executive coach. He said yes, and I chose Eleanor. And she helped me deal with those emotions and what to do and never giving me the answer like every good coach and mentor does. But giving me different things to think about, giving me the tools to deal with it. And I will tell you, not only did it help me professionally, but also helped me personally, because there were things that I could talk with Eleanor that I just couldn't share with anybody else. So in a very colloquial way, Eleanor became kind of my um, business wife. You know, I've often thought of coaches and mentors sometimes see our blind spots, but you were coming knowing that there's there's a weakness here I, that I'm, I feel ill-equipped to address. Is that fair? That is fair. So not only did I want it to be better at it, you know, in general, but there was a clear weakness that I thought was could be a fatal flaw, and I wanted to fix it before it was a, became a huge issue. Hmm. And I would say being invited, first of all, being selected. So we need the chemistry between the executive coach and the client. So the chemistry can also mask sometimes even the skill set of either person because together you do the synergy better work. 
that clearly is an important component of how I was able to be effective working with Craig. I would also say, in case it's not clear, that he has a very strong, coherent sense of self, but he allowed himself the possibility of expanding and becoming a more capable version. I mean, Dennis, that's like giving me a gift, right? <laughs> How many people come to you like that? So I don't know that I ever said it like that, but that I'm going, oh yeah, I definitely want to work with him. Usually you're called in and there is, and it's okay, but there's a lack of self and situational awareness and your work, my work is at the level of offering, you know, 360s and doing interviews of all your stakeholders and coming back and presenting, here's what it looks like. Have you ever thought, in this case, it was identified clearly by the client, Craig, and I just got to go in at what I call a very high level of self-awareness. So it's joyful. However, we if I'm leaving the impression it was Nirvana, remember that thing he said about a wife? So you can just imagine <laughs> there were moments when we did not agree. Mm-hmm. So we did have, I think, fairly fluid conversations around options and pathways. Yet there were times when my perspective, obviously different, I'm not sitting there running the company. I will tell you, I got invited to work with his, not all, some of his key executives, one who actually was his successor. So I had a lot of information from each of them that I think made me actually better at helping him consider other points of view, not even just mine, but other functional department heads. So I had, a re- I think, a really unusual context to work in. So it wasn't just there working for Craig. I also had other relationships that I think made my conversations with him richer. And that's not always common. So I worked at multiple levels. Yeah, Dennis, and that goes back to your comment about diversity of thought. Uh, it was great that Eleanor didn't always agree with me because how could you possibly evolve if the person you're counting on to help you just yeses you to death? Right. <laughs> so. Right. So true. And also, you know, that coherent sense of self, I think you need to have that mm-hmm. because in order to for mm-hmm. that person to provide constructive criticism, you have to have some thick skin. Yes. Oh, yeah. I appreciate your comment, Eleanor, that, that this was fertile ground for you to start your work yes. uh, from a coaching perspective. Yeah, and just to expand a bit more on what Eleanor said, as my staff saw the change in me, and I truly believe I became a better leader working with Eleanor, they started asking about working with Eleanor as well. Yeah. So I never forced them to. I, I ended up suggesting it to them. But it was all the people were self-motivated to do that. And well over half my staff ended up working with Eleanor. Excellent. So let's let's go back to the the development of that coherent sense of self. So you you weren't always in the cigar business. In fact, Craig, how many cigars had you had before you began working with Cigars International? Well, <laughs> uh, my wife and I were anti-tobacco, actually. And is that right? Yes, yes. And I never smoked anything in my life till I joined the company. So it's quite ironic, actually. So a real departure for you. Real departure. You, you actually began in with some closely held businesses in, in publishing, correct? Correct. And you you describe having a mentor relationship where you were 
you were kind of fully formed, occupying in one function, and your mentor saw something in your potential to do something a little bit different, and it changed the path of your career. Talk about that meaningful mentor relationship early in your career. Sure, I'd love to do that. Uh, a little background, I'm somebody who loves numbers. I think I'm a pretty good analyst. I have an MBA in finance, and my dream was to work on Wall Street. And when I graduated college, uh, it was difficult to break into that crowd because I didn't graduate from an Ivy League school. So I had to find something else. And I, you know, serendipity, I ended up in the publishing business working for Rupert Murdoch's magazine division. And Les Hinton, who would go, he was uh, the editor of the London Times, who would go on to be the editor of the Wall Street Journal, was a president of Murdoch magazines at the time. And I was pretty good at my job. And Les started putting me, uh, giving me different projects to do, which you had to be a little creative or, or, or to look at how to bring what was happening in real life onto the uh, spreadsheet. And he saw I had some creativity. And he said, Craig, you know, I really think you might do well more in the marketing or circulation department, as it's called in publishing. And I said something to Les, which was probably the dumbest thing I've ever said. And I, and I use it quite often when I describe it to people. I said, Les, I'd rather count money than make it. He just looked, he just looked at me <laughs> and laughed and said, well, Craig, uh, I'm going to move you over to the marketing department anyway. I think, that, I think that's where you'll really blossom. So with great trepidation, I was thrown in and it changed the course of my life and it gave me a different career track and it allowed me to use both parts of my brain, both the right and left part. And again, put me on a, on a success track that I don't think I would have had. And when I look at other people, a lot of people get stuck thinking this is the only thing they could do. But I think a lot of successful people look back and realize they not only change jobs, they change career tracks over their career. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're the, the uh, instigator of that. Sometimes it's, like I said, serendipity. But since that time, I've always then looked for what I call the hidden talents that people have. And everybody has a hidden talent. Now, whether or not they feel motivated to do it or really want to do something else, you know, that's really up to them. But uh, for instance, the woman who succeeded me, she originally started in the IT department. But again, very creative, a fantastic marketing mind that when she moved over <clears throat> and then developed some leadership skills was the perfect person to replace me. Mm -hmm. And it happened time and time in our organization where I would explain to people that moving up in the company is not just moving up vertically. Sometimes it's diagonally into another department to learn a different skill set. We had a tremendous amount of people moving from the department to, to department where they might have started out in the retail business or the call center and then move into marketing or um, accounting. And having that different perspective and different experiences just made them a better employee and a happier employee. So it's something we always looked at uh, very much so. And we call them high potentials, high posts. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and, and we focused on that. Excellent. That looking for hidden talent, if we're thinking of how to empower our team members, how to develop leaders, Eleanor, talk, talk me through kind of that discernment process. Obviously, you know, Craig acknowledged that he needed a nudge to kind of embrace that lateral move or, or embracing another, another side of that right-left brain dynamic. How do you begin that process of identifying and helping someone to cultivate that hidden talent that they might have? 
Well, I think one of the things that's really important to remember is it must be done in the context in which they're functioning and that you're dealing with the whole person. So for example, he talked about his talented person in the marketing area and the plan for possible succession and transition into a broader scale and scope and then a higher level. So to look exactly at where we are today in that case with that person, for me, this would be the the, uh, psych background that I have. I need to see from an assessment perspective, what are the characteristics of this personality that may help hinder or need to be amped up or reduced. So I, I do always, once invited in with permission, ask for an assessment, a battery, a personality assessment, a 360, and I like to do stakeholder interviews. And of course, stakeholder interviews would include your self-appraisal. So I get that picture. And then I'm called in typically by the, uh, the top executive, sometimes the chief human resource officer. And I am told, this is where we want this person, see this person. And as Craig said, I work with high potentials. I'm really not doing performance management in terms of correction. That belongs inside the company. I'm coming in as an executive coach to truly bring out the potential in people. So I do the battery. I ask the uh, person I'm working with for the opportunity to share back highlights, lowlights, and opportunities for change. Do more of, do less of, please stop doing. (laughs) And have you ever thought of doing? And we work together on that from all the feedback sources, including theirs, and present, here's our plan, here's our path, here's our playbook. And they, with me or without me, present what they intend to do with this gift they've been given of coaching to their superior. And then we we usually ask, I say, I need three, minimum of 90 days to see any behavioral change. And I usually ask for six months, two to three times a month for uh, virtual feedback and then two or three times a year at that, at this time we were able to, I was able to fly or be on site. So it is a process of development of the person using assessments, self-appraisals, secondary sources, and then feedback on, hey, Craig, you asked that she uh, focus more on her behavioral dynamic versus her facts in meetings. Did you see it? So the feedback loop must be there. So I know how I'm doing and she knows how, in this case, she knows how she was doing. So assessment, commitment from the top, a sponsor or an advocate for the coaching and ongoing feedback and a commitment of a minimum, really at this level, six months to a year. So it is really a true opportunity for the individual inside the company, because it's not like I'm taking you and being your therapist or putting you on a couch. I'm helping you be at your best. So you do your best work for this company. So that's what I would say, journey and process, assessment and feedback. Really interested in that that self-appraisal 
piece of that. Craig, do you, do you recall kind of going through that process of the self-appraisal? Is that an uncomfortable experience or is it something that, that you kind of embraced from the beginning? Well, self-appraisals are always uncomfortable. <laughs> so I'll start there. But, but let, me, let me just back up because the real world experience, first you have to identify the hypo. Mm-hmm. Then once you do, you kind of hand them over to Eleanor to, to refine and come up with uh, the end product, the jewel. So what I did at Cigars International and really just about anywhere I worked, I use the term voluntold because not everybody really wants to do that. And some people need, like me need to be nudged into it. That's very voluntold. true. I like that. Right. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> is, that, is that along the lines of mandatory fun? I think yeah. that's, that's in that same yeah. category. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's perfect. <laughs> You'll love doing this. <laughs> I'm a big believer that by to identify a hypo, which obviously they need to do their job very well, show critical thinking, show capabilities above and beyond. But how do you prove that before you invest that six or 12 months with Eleanor to get them to where they need to be? So what I would do quite often, and Eleanor could vouch for this, I would uh, you know, identify the hypos and then give them projects to do that were outside of their main competent area. And they were very uncomfortable with that. How am I going to succeed, Craig? How do I know what to do? There were sometimes I give them a very basic outline because they needed help to get started, but not the whole instruction manual. And others, I just say, figure it out Mm -hmm. because that was a test. Nobody ever failed because clearly the company couldn't afford that and I wouldn't allow them to fail. But the learnings and the hiccups along the way were very instrumental. So it goes back again to preparing for critical issues and the ability to think on your feet and handle occasions that you've never had to handle before in a new way. Work with people from different departments and just stretch yourself and, and be stretched and, and form an internal team to get that project done. When I look back, all of that work with the executive team and the people who are able to, to rise up like my successor, a part of it, and I don't know how much, was part by giving them large projects to run in areas they had no experience in, and that gave them the experience to handle anything that could be thrown their way. What do you think, Eleanor? I think that the part about the – so identify the gap, which obviously would be there because they're at a clearly lower level, yet you see – in them the ability and the capability to be able to perform. So you're taking a risk, you're paying an executive coach, and you need to give them that practice space. No, you weren't going to let them fail, but they could flounder, do a lot of discovery learning, yet they come out with, okay, I got through and then the gate opens and you give them the next one. So approximations of the position they would be in but not throwing the position at them yet. So I saw that gradually done. I would also tell you, Dennis, there were some people that needed to stay exactly where they were and they weren't necessarily able to produce or perform at the level he hoped. And that's okay. So it was not a failure. It just helped you see, can I give them this much? How far can they go? And as he said, I mean, he would identify and give them the opportunity they would have to want to, but clearly the stretch on occasion 
was too much. So it is a learning. It is, it is truly organizational learning. And then the opportunity to develop network and relationship outside your function, which later on served them well when the firm moved from a very locally controlled to a control out of Copenhagen at corporate which Craig talked about. That whole transition and your success in moving from, wait, Craig's my boss to somebody who lives in Copenhagen who I just virtually interact with as my boss, I think it helped them have the muscle development and practice. Yet I do want you to know that not everyone got to be a VP or a senior person. Some kind of stayed right where they were. But it also helped people experience something more, and then they realize, you know, that's not what they want, which was okay too. That's right. Yeah. You know? It also helped me avoid the Peter principle, where you've been there three years, I'm going to promote you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a big believer. I promote based on value, experience, desire, motivation, all that stuff, not just because of tenure. And once that was understood, uh, it became easy because nobody was chasing a spot because they knew I wasn't going to give them just because. They had to earn it. And part of earning it was obviously doing your job, but also taking on those additional tasks because as you moved up in the organization, your responsibilities grew broader and they needed to make sure that you could handle it before mm-hmm. you got the promotion, not after. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, so much there. I want to get into the right left brain thing here for a second because you guys have really done a good job of describing that that tension that it, that should exist in, in the high pose with uh, you know right and left brain and, and being able to embrace the creativity too. But can you give me the, I was going to ask you if there's particular attributes that you look for when you're identifying talent. You gave a list. Could you give that list again? Oh, so they have critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they clearly can do their job. They have the ability to take on more responsibility. They're mature. They, they're the ability to work with people, the ability to form a team of, of different talents where it's not just a functioning group. Uh, or an efficient group, but it's a functioning team. So all that plays into the kind of people I was looking for to take on more and more responsibility. Now, keep in mind that when I got to the company, the annual run rate was uh, less than 100 million. And just a few years later, with that team, I was able to build it into more than a $350 million company. That doesn't happen by chance. It happens with great talent Mm -hmm. and we did do some external hires, but the majority of the executive team were people who were there and grew into new roles, which I have to tell you, watching that develop over the years was so rewarding. And again, you, you had to have a significant number of those attributes that I mentioned to be able to do that. Otherwise, you would pretty much stay in your job and your responsibilities got deeper, but not necessarily broader. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. When it comes to that that right-brained and left-brained leadership, Eleanor, you talk about some people are going to maybe hit a ceiling or find out that that the full ramp up to the VP level might not be their cup of tea or might not be their uh, their career trajectory. Have you found people who can can be hypo right-brained or hypo left-brained, or does it does it really important to have that good balance between the two, or at least some aspects of both of them present? Well, okay. So each of us, you, me, also, Craig, anyone we speak to is coming to the table at this point with a track record of success and strengths. 
So the biggest thing for me, and this goes back to my bias for assessments, is I need to understand what am I really working with that's a part of your cognitive process inside your personality. So for example, are you that naturally touchy-feely person or are you that facts, logic, and numbers person, all of which are fine? We, however, know the research is not just my research, but the literature on um, executives that are successful demonstrates that I have to know when to flip between the two sides. That's the flexibility and agility that we opened with earlier. So it's the exquisite intentional choice. Yet if I know my bias, so I know it may surprise you, maybe not, but my my bias isn't for the consideration and the human touch. My bias is for facts, logic, policy, procedure. And that serves me well. Yet do I know that that then needs to be turned down, dimmed down, lowered, so I can drop into the feeling, compassion, consideration side. That's what we, that's what we find, Dennis. You, we each have a capacity for it. Where do you overdo, underdo, and how do you become self and situationally acutely aware where you need to put your foot on the accelerator and where you need to hit the brake? So it's the dance and the balance Again, versatility and agility. I must have both. Have I seen successful people that were absolutely two standard deviations from the mean on the number side, the quant side? You know I have. I've seen them have limitations in inspiring and motivating others. On the other side, have I seen people so compassionate and caring that they're unable to deliver? And it begins to show as you have more and more people, teams, or functions reporting to you. You have to do both. You and I, me included, do not get a choice to be one or the other. We have to know when to be strategic, when to be operational, Mm -hmm. when to be enabling, and when to be forceful. Mm -hmm. If I could put it a little bit differently, what I think you're really talking about is the difference between subject matter experts and high potential people who could also be subject matter experts. The problem with a lot of subject matter experts, and I'll give three career tracks as an example, a scientist, a lawyer, and a uh, data architect, let's say, right, in, in, uh, in the IT department. And we had them all in the company. And clearly you need them. And we needed scientists who could help us develop the blends, but also work with the regulators and FDA. Mm-hmm. And they knew this stuff down cold. But that didn't mean they could really do anything else just because they were best at that. Lawyers who could help you stay out of trouble because that's really their job. Um, But if they couldn't then convert that with some business acumen and some compassion about the company and then look to be your partner as opposed to being your traffic cop, there's a big difference. And if a data architect could only see zeros and ones but not understand how to use that and an online way to drive more traffic and more sales, well, they're not really a hypo, right? So it it was important to differentiate who the experts were versus the people who could help drive the business forward in a more totalitarian way. 
And I think that's to me is the difference. You need, but you need all those people. You need the experts, but the people who are really going to drive the business forward are the people who have that expert background, but also the other qualities. And this is where I think, Craig, you and I find some overlap in, in our professions and the work that we do in, in the finance profession. There are subject matter experts. There are people who can make mm-hmm. very good decisions about how to invest and, and how to generate returns over time. But in the end, it's about influencing people to make good decisions. Correct. That you can be the, mm-hmm. the best investor in the world, but if you if you can't convince people to make good decisions in the long term, then short-termism can ruin the whole thing. That's a great analogy. Yeah, It is. It's perfect. Yeah, it's taking off different hats sometimes and recognizing when it's not action that's required, it's coaching, it's communication, it, it's, that, it's that different skill set. Uh, it's a very, very important realization. I, I always hone in on the right and left brain. Full disclosure, I'm the son of an accountant and an art teacher. So my right and left brain are in constant tug of war. So. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So you've been raised in paradox. How great is that? Yeah, that is great. You know, that repertoire, you're, you're hitting it. First of all, you're, I know it's not about you, Dennis, yet your ability to capture and reflect the thoughts that we're both presenting and the ideas is artful. And I think it's that wide lens you have. It's a repertoire. And I would say that for leaders, the repertoire of skills, abilities, and behavior, the broader they are as a person, the more likely they are able to influence people, teams, and organizations in this fast-paced world. It is not about my brightness, but my ability to influence and I would offer sometimes even persuade. I don't know how that works in the mm-hmm. wealth management world, but that's what you're touching on. I don't, you know, I'd have to be convinced somehow to give you my bank account and et cetera. So think about that. That that and that's the other thing, the trust factor. Correct. I don't know that we're really talking about that, but I would say the people that worked for Craig. And it goes further than this because he did an acquisition or two or three or four when I was around. And I would sometimes help with the integration between the executive teams of the businesses. So it's it's not individual. It's also team coaching and organizational coaching. My point before, though, trust. So did I trust him to really care about me as a person and my career? And people did. So that's key too. And I don't think it's been said. That's fundamentally must be there. I'm not going to listen if I don't think you care. And I don't know that that's too different than being wealth management. It has to come from that place. Yes. It's very true. Very true. Let's pull this in our last few minutes here. Let's pull this forward to today. Craig, we talked about just the um, the upward trend, the the bumps that happened kind of industry specific. Now we're in a place in 2020 where leaders are making decisions where they, they may not have expected to six months ago. What, what are you seeing right now? You're, and it's interesting because now you're both in the position of observer, mm-hmm. that Craig being an advisor to a business and Eleanor in your role as a coach. As observers, what are the challenges and opportunities that leaders have here in June of 2020? Eleanor, why don't you go first? Oh, well, <laughs> thank you. Let me say thank you. I love that opportunity. I'm feeling, and this is from listening to the two of you and then the whole conversation that we're in, that it feels real. it's hard right now, but it's very crucial to get input, 
about my, if I'm the leader, my impact and my effectiveness of my behavior. So I'm responding to the change, running the change, ahead of the change, but how am I really doing? But And remembering to ask respected colleagues, what should I stop, start, and continue doing to be more effective? Do not forget to get feedback because we're all, I think, moving at an accelerated pace. And this is crucial, plus it involves people so that you can have a more systemic approach, not just the way you think it should be. And it is hard now to do that. And I would say it's critical. That's like the old Ed Koch slogan. How am I doing? Oh, hey, check in, yeah. say, how, how am I doing? It's, it's easy as that. Yeah, it is. However, when how many times did you do it in the last week? Right. Are you doing it periodically? Mm-hmm. So that's just one thing that hit me. Craig, your turn. Well, I just want to touch quickly on what you said about trust, though. I'm a big believer that without trust, you really can't move forward. And, you know, you probably ask us later about the books uh, we've read. Uh, One that I I actually bought a copy and gave it to my leadership team is The Speed of Trust by Stephen M. R. Covey. Mm -hmm. And you could actually quantify trust in an organization. And if you think about that, if there is trust from leadership on down, while people can challenge, which is healthy, they don't question, which is very negative and slows things down. So if there's no trust and the leadership says, this is what we need to do, uh, people are going to question it. They may not uh, do exactly what they need to do. They may do the opposite. They'll waste time arguing about what's right. And it could really be detrimental to the momentum and direction of the company. But if there's a high level of trust, you can move quickly because mm-hmm. people believe in leadership and that we're all in this together. So I think, I don't think, I know CI was like that. Uh, I tried to be a leader that engendered trust. I wanted to show that I was vulnerable, that I was open. I was a, uh, tried to communicate as well as I could the good and the bad news and that people could feel comfortable challenging me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they did, and they did. There was uh, just one little example of um, someone in front during a leadership team meeting called me a liar. Wow! Now I, I didn't I didn't lie. I just changed my mind. Wow! But they were so. Oh yeah, yeah. You remember that, Eleanor? But they were yeah, so now. They, they were so incensed. Yeah. That I changed yes. my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. and this is before this person had coaching with Eleanor Mm -hmm. and and understood, I I simply changed my mind. Uh, this person came to me afterwards and I said, I guess you're going to fire me now. I said, no, but this is going to be a good lesson. I didn't particularly like you calling me a liar, but it's okay to challenge me. I think you could have done a little bit differently and you could have been more open to what I was saying, but no, I'm not going to fire you because you realize that it could have been handled a little bit differently. And that, that was kind of a defining moment in the relationship with this person. Mm-hmm. So, so trust is absolutely incredible. But, you know, your original question was, you know, how are people preparing? What are they doing? Uh, it, it turns out that I think my success as a leader has been as a mentor and advisor to people. You know, giving them guidance, but giving them room to go out and do what they need to do. Or as I like to say, Hire the best people and get get the hell out of their way. Get out of their way, right? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, but but I've been speaking. You know, people have actually been reaching out to me because I guess they they like my point of view. 
I'm not afraid to tell them they're wrong if I think they're wrong, but in a professional way. So if I could just quickly share, I had a conversation recently with the president, uh, a local president within the Lehigh Valley of a, 21, uh, a chain of 21 family restaurants, where the week after the pandemic, their revenues went down 90%, 90%. Wow. So clearly this was a, a huge issue. And because the president was a good leader and somebody I'd known for a while and recognized that, quickly put things into play to save cash. His executive team went from earning six figures to earning $12 an hour because they knew they had to do that to help save the company. And nobody quit, you know, which shows something, right? The loyalty, uh, not only to the company, but to, to the president. And because they had started, now, now again, a restaurant chain, very different from CI, which is an online business, which benefited, this restaurant chain had to quickly pivot to uh, deliveries, online ordering, which they really hadn't done before. And within a matter of uh, two months, regained about half their revenue, Wow, which was fantastic. And because they had started to do a little of that before the pandemic, they weren't quite totally flat-footed. I said, well, that's a good story, but let me perhaps chide you a little that you think you did enough of that forward thinking beforehand to be really prepared. And we went, we started discussing it and he realized that he was so focused on growing his core business and happy to see the returns, didn't really worry about anything else. So within the box he was playing in, wasn't worried about the white space at all. And it turns out that white space was pretty important. And had he focused on it more, he might not have lost 90% of his revenue. He would have lost a much lower percentage and would have been much more ahead of the competition. And we talked about that. He realized I was right and wished he had spoken to me earlier. I said, okay, well, whatever. But, but this is a lesson. And going forward now, he's going to explore that white space, but also try to expand the box he's playing in. So he's not caught flat-footed next time. Right. And he's prepared. And I think that's a really valuable lesson. So while he had a little bit of that experience of outside the core business, it wasn't enough. Very, very interesting. And I think that's constructive feedback for a business owner now, because as things start to, to come back online, there's an awareness now of what does someone do when there is the opportunity for preparation, not just the opportunity for growth, but the opportunity to be better aligned for the next disruption that could happen. And we never know where it's going to come from, but it's not all about the growth side. It is about the preparation for the uncertainty too. Right. There's a lot of talk about having disaster recovery plans. Mm -hmm. There are a few companies actually have them, have and, them right? and, have, and even fewer companies update them. They do it because the board of directors says they need it. They put it in a binder, they file it, and it's done. Right. But it has to be updated. So really now stepping back, pausing, and thinking through the conversation today, what became clear to me, Craig, and I know, Dennis, you're right there with us, but Craig, you opened some early comment you made around, you have a leadership culture because the leaders were routinely and systemically developed, you actually had a surplus of leaders ready for the next opportunity or challenge. I think that's part of the preparation that is perhaps not attended to. Mm. 
Mm. Well, again, it, it, it was it wasn't quite serendipity, but to go back to when I first started at <laughs> Cigars International, the the leadership team there, well, it was run by the founders of the company who were excellent. Listen, they mm. created a, a tremendous foundation, but they ran it in a hub and spoke model where they basically told the managers of each department what to do, when to do, and how to do it. So all the managers were great tacticians, but weren't really involved in the business itself. When I got there, and you know, I said before, I knew nothing about the uh, cigar business, let alone the tobacco business, but I knew how to run a company. The managers, though, expected the same kind of uh, direction from me that they got from the founders. And I said, no, I'm not paying you so I can tell you what to do. I'm paying you. You're running this department. You need to figure it out. So it actually forced me to force them to think about what they were doing and to become leaders. And admittedly, not everybody could change what they were doing to become that. I gave people a chance, though, and you know, within six to 12 months, some of the people who weren't comfortable with that style of leadership left. But going forward, the other people embraced it. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, you know, Eleanor can, can vouch for this. They, they love the opportunity to expand their wings, take accountability and responsibility, which are two different things, and be able to manage the business, be a part of the bigger business. And it was a wonderful thing to see. And I think that really was the genesis for allowing CI to become so successful. Right there and then, back in 2009, telling people, no, you need to stand up and be a part of the leadership. Yes. not be a part of, the, of just a management team, which are two different things. Exactly. I think the common thread that I'm hearing through a lot of this today, whether it's Craig in, in your development as a leader, so much of it that, that in that incubation phase was what someone else saw in you. And then in your development of a team, it was what you saw in the potential of those around you, walking in and seeing this team of employees and managers and what they could be as leaders. And I think that, that that's a... At a time like this, that's an important optimistic note to take is that others see more than what we are in our potential, and it's possible for us to observe more than what our teams are right now and embrace their potential as well. Right. You need to give people a chance. And I'm not necessarily saying everybody, but there's always people in every organization that given the chance will succeed beyond your wildest dreams. And it's up to you as a leader to recognize that. And in difficult times, many leaders have a tendency to pull back and hold on tighter and be more exactly. uh, autocratic. Contracted. That's Contracted exact, and in, autocratic. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. In my opinion, that's exactly the wrong tack to take. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Craig and Eleanor, my quarantine bookshelf, I've, I've torn through it now. I need some I need some new sources. And Craig, you mentioned uh, Speed of Trust. I have that written down as as one of your sources, one of you, one of your books. Are there other things that you've been reading, listening to, thinking about that that would benefit our audience? Well, the most recent one that I was reading was John Maxwell, The Leader's Greatest Return, Attracting, Developing, and Multiplying Leaders. And it's a 2020 book. So I think it's really excellent. And I read all the time, but that's just top of mind. 
the leader's greatest return, Maxwell. I'm so glad Maxwell holds a special place in my heart. He was when I was a uh, a young lieutenant in the army. The the chaplain had a budget for books, oh my God. and he would buy everything by Maxwell and would just feed wow. feed it to me. <laughs> and so Maxwell was really the, my first exposure to a lot of leadership development and all of that language that goes into it. So, but I have not heard, I haven't read this one. So there's there's some new uh, new material. It's great. It's brand new. Craig, how about you? Any other books or reading materials that, that have been uh, you know, on your nightstand these days? Well, I'm glad you said these days because it's a little different. As uh, you know, I've transitioning from EVP of Scandinavian Tobacco to senior advisor and uh, looking what to do with the next phase of my life. You know, I've read just about every business book there was trying to be a better version of myself. But right now, uh, basically staying at home and homeschooling my granddaughter it's been a combination of Disney Plus. Thank God for that channel. Excellent. And, and um, really just some escapism into action novels. I've been reading a lot by Lee Child and Robert Ludlum. You know, just action heroes, which uh, the world needs more of. So are you a Jason Bourne guy or Jack Reacher guy? Which, where's, where's your gravity on that one? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh I, I think a, a Jason Bourne guy, a little bit more. But Jack Reach is not, not, not so bad either. Good. Although I don't think Tom, Tom Cruise is the model Lee Child was thinking about <laughs> from a physical perspective. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Right. Craig, we really appreciate you and Eleanor being on the show today. Thanks for all of your insights. I really think it's an important time to be discussing what we see in others and what others see in us. And we'll link to your contact information for both of you in the show notes. If anyone would like to reach out to Craig or Eleanor for some insights or some further guidance on how they're running their businesses. So thank you for joining us today with Craig Reynolds and Eleanor Lawrence. And we look forward to talking with you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dennis. It was a pleasure. Morton Brown Family Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. More information is available at our website, www.mortonbrownfw.com.